who are you and what are you doing here? Now that isn't exactly the greeting that we use here at Whitefields Church when we uh, say, you know, you're here for the first time, who are you and what are you doing here? But, however, these questions, they're two of the most important questions that we must consider. They're questions that people are asking, whether consciously or not. Um, they're two of the most fundamental, profound questions that each of us face that we all have to answer. Who are you? And what are you doing here? The first question, who are you? That is a question of identity. The second question, what are you doing here? I don't mean literally here, although I do believe that God has you here this morning for a purpose. But who are you and what are you doing here? A question of identity and a question of mission, a question of purpose. What are you doing here? Those are issues that are faced here. They are the focus of the book of, of, of Ephesians. Who are you and what are you doing here? What is your identity? Who does God say that you are? And secondly, what is your mission? What is the things which God has you here for? What are the things which God wants you to be about? Your purpose. So who are you and what are you doing here? Again, who are you? That's what we're going to begin with. Who are you? How would you answer that question? What if I asked you to fill in the blank? Answer this question. I am blank. How would you answer that? How would you fill in that blank? I'm not asking for your name. I'm asking for your identity. What is it that defines you? What is it that makes you who you are? How would you fill in that blank? I am blank. I am young. Some of you might say, I am old, I am rich, I am poor, I am single, I'm married, I'm divorced, I'm a mom, I'm a grandpa, I'm a conservative, I'm a liberal, I'm an engineer, I'm an accountant, I'm an athlete, I'm an artist, I'm successful, I'm a failure, I'm well known, I'm highly appreciated, I'm unknown, I'm undervalued. Who do you think you are? That's the question I want you to consider. Who do you think you are? One of the most important and key themes to the book of Ephesians is identity. That's really a very important biblical theme. Identity. Who are you? And you know, we're all asking that question all the time. We're asking the question, who am I? And we're trying to answer that question whether consciously or uh, sometimes unconsciously. Many times other people try to answer that question for us. Who are you? They'll answer that question for us. They'll give us names. They'll give us nicknames for who we are. Some of them are positive and sometimes they're negative. I, I would say imagine it like this. I got an image for you that I, that I like. Imagine it like this. Post-it notes, right? You like post-it notes? We all love, I know guys who work in offices, you love post-it notes, right? But throughout our lives, imagine it like this. People are placing labels on us like post-it notes. You are this and they slap a post-it note on us. You are pretty. You are smart. You are successful. You are ugly. You are a failure. You're an idiot. You never do anything right. Slap, slap, slap. These are post-it notes that are being placed on us, telling us who we are. And we've got all these labels on us that people have stuck on us like post-it notes, and they very much do affect the way that we have a sense of identity of who we think we are. But here is the biblical truth that you need to know today. Here's the biblical truth. Much more important than who you think you are, much more important than who other people say that you are, is who God declares that you are. 
I want you to remember that. You note takers, here's one to write down. Much more important than who you think you are or who other people say that you are is who God declares that you are. God's word has a whole lot to say about who you are. And that is going to be our focus here, especially in the first part of Ephesians. Who does God say that you are? What is your identity according to him? And so the challenge for us as people who live in this world is that as we look at God's word, as we consider what he says about us, the challenge is that we need to remove all of these post-it notes, all these labels that people have stuck on us, and, uh, and we need to stop letting those things define our identity and what we need to do is we need to put on new post-it notes onto ourselves, which are who God declares us to be. And we need to build our identity on that. And that's important because here's why. Apart from God's definition of who you are, people, and that means all people, they are suffering from identity crisis. Right? They're suffering from identity crisis. They're, they're kind of adrift in a sea with no bearing, no point of reference. They're trying to figure out who they are and what they are here for, what they're doing here. What's the purpose of their existence? Who exactly are they? We're all searching for identity. We're all asking that question, who am I? The thing is that most of the time, the things that people build their identity upon are things which are not really who they are. They're just things which describe things about them or they describe things that they do activities that they do or things that they're good at but it doesn't really get down to the essence of who they are at the most fundamental level at the core of their being and, and many of the things that people tend to build their identity on they are things which are subject to change right and when those things are lost or when they change which they inevitably will that's when people have an identity crisis, right? If your identity is based on some ability that you have or some activity that you do, then what happens when you lose the ability to do that thing? When you can no longer do that, you no longer have that which you've built your identity upon. If your identity is based on being a parent, for example, or on having a particular job or position, then what happens when you lose that position? What happens when the kids are gone? What happens is identity crisis, which is my way of saying that people freak out because they no longer know who they are, right? The thing which used to give them identity is gone. And in other words, their world has crumbled, so to say. In a way, they've lost that thing which they believe gave them value and significance and purpose, and they feel lost, right? In, in the last year, you know, we moved back from Hungary about, uh, about a year and a half ago almost. And uh, in the last, you know, year and a half since we moved back from Hungary, uh, I've been in contact with a, a number of uh, missionaries and former missionaries who have moved home uh, or left the mission field or are preparing to leave the mission field. And identity crisis, this kind of thing I'm talking about today, it is a, uh, a major issue for them. There are actually a number of books written on this very topic for missionaries who leave the mission field because all of them almost you know that a lot of them they struggle with this issue of identity because here's the thing when this is just one example but this could be you know translated into any number of circumstances or situations but when you're a missionary you know very well who you are and what you're about it's very well defined 
And people view you in a certain way, right? Because you're a missionary. When people introduce you to other people, they say, hey, I want you to meet my friend Nick. He's a missionary, right? And the question is then, what happens when you leave that? What happens when you're no longer that, right? Whereas before there was something that set you apart, that made you different, but suddenly that is gone. And that's hard for a lot of people to handle, for a lot of people to, you know, deal with. I just talked to a guy even last week. Um, he was eight years, he was a missionary in Eastern Europe and he was a church planter and a pastor. And uh, about a year ago he moved back to America and he is working as a janitor and he works the night shift cleaning toilets. Now, is there anything wrong with being a janitor? Absolutely not. That is honest work. There is dignity in that work, right? Then what is the problem? What's the guy's issue, right? The, the problem is this. It's difficult for him to grapple with this because before he had his identity so wrapped up in what he did, that he was a pastor, that he was a missionary, he was a church planter, a Bible teacher, and now all that has changed. And he's dealing with, well, you know, what do I do now? Who am I now? His, his identity and purpose was well-defined and now it's gone. And, and when he meets people, they don't know him as the person that he has been known as for, you know, the past eight years. And that was an important part of who he was. It made up his identity. But here's the thing that he needs to learn, that I need to learn, that all of us in here, every single one of you needs to learn is this. We have to, we need to establish our identity biblically. You have to establish your identity biblically. Because when you establish your identity biblically, when you let God say to you who you are, then you can differentiate between what you do and who you are. And where you come from and who you are. And what people have done to you and who you are. Right? Some people, your family background is something that you're proud of. But you've got to know that for other people, and, and some of you know who you are, right? Your family background, that is a burden that you carry. It's not a blessing. It's a curse is what you feel like. And, and you know, for others of you, maybe you have done terrible, regretful, regrettable things. And, and others of you, on the other hand, terrible things have been done to you. And those things can easily shape your identity. But again, when we establish our identity biblically, what that means is that who you are is not defined by where you come from or what you've done, and it's especially not defined by what people have done to you. I hope you know that. I want you to see that as we study the word. The message of the gospel is that in Christ you can become a new person, a new life, a new creation, and along with that new life, guess what? You get a new identity. Isn't that good? I hope you realize how good that is. It's not defined by where you come from or where you've been or what you've done or what has been done to you, but it is defined by this, who you are in Christ who you are in Christ. So the question for you today, who are you and what are you doing here? The book of Ephesians, this is a, a letter which Paul wrote to the Christians in the city of Ephesus. 
This letter is broken down into six chapters and basically uh, the first three chapters are about who we are in Christ and the final three chapters are about how we should live therefore practically in light of who we are in Christ. In other words, the first three chapters are about who we are. The final three chapters are about what we're doing here. And that order is important. We first need to establish who we are in Christ and then the practical stuff, the stuff about marriage, the stuff about work, all this practical living stuff, that is the outflow of what God has done for us and who we have become in Christ. So let's get into it. If you got your Bible, please do follow along with me. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The letter to the Ephesians, it has been called the Alps of the New Testament because in this letter, it's essentially, this letter, it's taking us on a journey to a very high place, even up into the heavenly places and especially here in these first three chapters it's it's almost as if Paul takes us on a journey up onto a high mountain from where we have a panoramic view from where we can look down on this great panoramic view of all of the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ that are ours in Christ imagine if you would a king in a medieval kingdom and he takes his son up on the highest mountain in the kingdom and when they get to the top he says son look around everything you see it's yours that is your inheritance Everything that you see, essentially that's exactly what we have here in Ephesians, especially Ephesians chapter 1, taking us up in a high place, even the heavenly place, and saying, look around. Everything you see, it's yours in Christ. So who are you? There, there are, in these first three verses, there are, there are three post-it notes that God wants to stick on you, right? He wants you to remove all the other ones and stick on these ones. And, and here's the first one. Who are you? You are called. You are called, okay? Paul starts this letter by stating that in Christ, he is called. He is an apostle. And you too, every one of you who is here today, I want you to know this. You have a calling on your life. You say, me? Nah. Yes, you. You have a calling on your life. Paul starts this letter by stating that in Christ, he is called to be an apostle. That was his particular specific calling for his life but you too if you're here today I want you to know God has a calling on your life the apostle Peter he wrote this he said be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure for if you do this you will never stumble interesting right be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure if you do that you will never stumble if you're here today and you have not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you have not given your life over to him and said, I am yours, you need to know that the first and most important calling that God has for your life is that you would follow him. Every one of his disciples, Jesus called them to follow him at whatever cost, at any cost, and many of them, they left things. 
Actually, all of them, they left things in order to follow him. And the same is true for us. Jesus says, I want you to follow me. There will be a cost, but I want you to follow me at any cost. The same is true for you and I. Before God calls you to do anything for him, the first and most important thing he calls you to do is to come after him, to follow him, to become his disciple. Jesus had 12 disciples. You ever notice, though, that there were these guys, they were called the disciples, and then suddenly after Jesus uh, ascends into heaven, uh, from that point on, we don't read about them as disciples. From that point on, we start reading about those same people as apostles, right? What's that all about? Here's the deal. A disciple, what that word means, it means a student, a follower of a teacher, but the word apostle is different. The word apostle means messenger, right? So it means one who is sent, a representative, an ambassador, a messenger. So these men, their first and primary calling was to be disciples. First, students, followers of Jesus. But then after they had done that faithfully, their calling expanded. And now they were not only disciples, but they became apostles. Those who were sent out by Jesus as messengers, as representatives, as ambassadors. And you too, who are you? You are a person who has been called. Every one of you. You are a person who has been called. You have been beckoned by God. You have been called out of darkness and into his wonderful light. You have been called to be his messenger, his hands and his feet through whom he accomplishes his purposes, his goals, his desires, his agenda in this world. But you are called. The question for you to answer is, Will you respond to that call? The question for you to think about is, how will you respond to that call? Because it's already, you know, it's not a question of if he's calling you. The answer is yes, he is calling you. In Christ, you are called. The question is, will you respond and how? You know, one thing I think people often misunderstand about calling is they have this idea that there's a distinction between the sacred and the secular. And even these terms, if you trace them back, they they go back to enlightenment thinking, which was all about compartmentalizing life, right? And that these areas never touch. You have sacred areas of your life and you have secular areas of your life. I remember talking to a guy in our church uh, back in Hungary and he he told me that he went to do business with another Christian man who he knew from from a church. and, uh, And he said that, They sat down and started talking about some things. He realized that what this guy was doing in his business was completely illegal. And he asked the man, what are you, you, I thought you're a Christian. What are you doing, doing all this illegal business? The guy's answer, hey, business is business and church is church, right? So that's that's what I'm talking about. That's when we make a distinction between secular and sacred. The thing you got to understand though is that the Bible makes no such distinction. What God's word wants is for every area of your life to be brought under the sphere of the gospel and the influence of the gospel. So anyway, we we can often have this misunderstanding about sacred and secular and sacred and secular work, right? Many, Many people think in order to fulfill a calling on your life, you need to leave the secular workforce and you need to do sacred work. Like quit your job as a businessman and become a preacher, right? I don't think that's the case at all. Um, I think that for many of us, God's calling for your life is actually that you would be a law enforcement officer or a 
teacher or a nurse or even an engineer or even a businessman or a politician. I know some of you guys are like, wait a second, did you just say that? Surely God wouldn't call anybody to be a politician or a businessman. Those people are like dodging lightning bolts all day long because God hates them. No, not at all. No, seriously, think about this. Do you think that God would not call somebody to be a politician? To be a force for change in society? To have a say in setting the course for our culture? Just because a lot of politicians do things that are not according to God's heart doesn't mean that God wouldn't call somebody to be in that sphere and do things which are according to his heart, right? Shaping cities, being a force for creating justice and human flourishing in our towns and in our cities, representing the things that are in accordance with God's heart and God's desires that reflect his agendas. Do you think God would ever call somebody to be part of that? I think that he would. Uh, do you think that God would ever call anybody to be a businessman? Do you think that can be a calling? I, th I think it can. To provide jobs for people so they can put food on the tables for their families and make lots of money and, and fund humanitarian uh, efforts and, and fund churches and ministries that preach the gospel so that lives can be affected and changed by God's word. I think that God would call people to do that. Um, would, God, would God call somebody to be an engineer? Would God call somebody to be a teacher? I believe that he would. Um, for some of you, your calling will be to represent God through your vocation, through the work that you do. Uh, I knew a guy who was an EMT, and he told me, I believe that my job is my calling from God, that God uses me as his hands and his feet to minister to hurting people, to save lives, to bring healing, to bring comfort to the hurt. I've known artists who said similar things, that their job was a calling from God. In other words, that they believed that God had called them to bring glory to him by creating beauty. And when they created art, right, that what they were really doing was stirring up people's hearts for the true beauty that their hearts truly long for in the depths of their soul because the reason, right, that we love beauty is because eternity is written on our hearts. That's why we love beauty is because we were made to know God and God is beautiful and he has written eternity on our hearts. So some of you will serve God. That's your calling is to serve God through your vocation. Uh, but for others of you, you might say, all right, I get it, right? Doctors, nurses, yeah, their jobs can be a calling from God. But what about me, right? I am a telemarketer, man. I'm a telemarketer. I work in middle management at Crocs, right? Like, like I realize God wants people to have shoes, but Crocs, man. Like there's a good chance people, there's a good chance that God doesn't even like Crocs. And when he looks on Crocs, his anger is kindled, you know. What about me, you know. Or maybe you say, what about me? I, I work at Subway, man. I, I don't really feel like I'm fulfilling a particular calling by making meatball sandwiches for minimum wage every day, right. Well, here's what I would say to you. For some people, their job is their calling. But for other people, their job is the thing which enables them to fulfill their calling, right? If your calling is to be a dad, well, you got to put some food on the table, right? 
Anyway, think about it like this. Think about Paul the Apostle. There's a reason we call him Paul the Apostle and not Paul the tent maker, although tent making was his vocation, right? Uh, he knew that he was called to be an apostle, yet when he lived in Corinth, he worked as a tent maker. That was his trade. Why did he work as a tent maker? Because he needed to make money. Why? So that he could fulfill his calling. He needed to rent an apartment and buy some groceries, you know. Being a tent maker, it was good, honest work. But Paul didn't do it because he had a sense of calling, that this was his calling in life to be a tent maker. Rather, he did it so that he could fulfill that thing which he knew was his calling, to be an apostle. Do you see what I'm saying? Uh, let me ask you, what is your calling in life? Think through that. If it is to work in a particular field for God's glory, to be his hands and his feet and to bless people through doing the work that you do, through doing God's work by doing your work, awesome, do that. If your calling, on the other hand, is maybe you say, you know what, my calling is to be a dad and a mom and raise up my kids to know the Lord. My calling is to teach Sunday school. My calling is to do any number of other things that, that aren't a job that pays, for example. Uh, then what you do for work, what you do for money, that is what you do so that you can afford to do your calling, to fulfill your calling. Either way, here's the point. When you realize that what you do is just what you do, it's not who you are. When you realize that what you do is just what you do, it's not who you are, then you are set free from unnecessary worry and anxiety in regard to your work. When you, you don't need to lose sleep at night about what's going on at work. You don't need to let your job dominate your life and ruin you with stress because your job, it's not who you are, it's just what you do. Paul the Apostle, he would say, I'm not a tent maker, that's not who I am, that's just what I do for money, right? You know who I am. Here's who I am. I am a man who has been called by Jesus Christ. I've been called to Jesus Christ, and I have been called by Jesus Christ to be his messenger, to be his hands and his feet in the world. And no matter what I do vocationally, no matter what I do for money, that is who I am. That's my identity. And here's the thing for you. Don't confuse what you do for who you are. Don't confuse what you do for who you are. Who you are in Christ in the heavenly places, that is your identity. You are called. You are called to come to Jesus Christ and you are called to be sent out by Jesus Christ as a messenger, as a representative for the fulfillment of his purposes. The next post-it note, the first one, you are called. Next post-it note that God sticks on us here telling us who we are in Christ is at the end of verse one. He addresses this letter to the saints who are at Ephesus to the saints who are you you are a saint you are a saint to the saints who are in Ephesus now it doesn't mean that Paul was addressing this letter to the the good people there in the church of Ephesus you know the people who you know read their Bibles you know really every day and they you know they read Deuteronomy for fun at lunchtime you know they they quote from Ezekiel in everyday conversation you know what I'm saying the really devout people the saints no that's not what he's saying he what he's doing here he's making a declaration of a Christian's identity in Christ if you are in Christ this is who you are you are a saint maybe you would say listen I am no saint man if you knew my secrets you would know I am no saint. Or maybe you say, 
all right, I accept that, that I'm a saint. Thank you very much. But you know what? The person I'm married to, not a saint. You know, I, I understand I'm probably winning some saint points by being married to him. You know what I mean? Or, or you know what? There's this person sitting a few rows away from me here at church, and there's some things I know about them that you probably don't know. And if you did, you wouldn't be calling them a saint. I'll tell you that much. The fact is, we're sinners, right? And in, in fact, you have to be clear on the, the fact that you are a sinner in order to even become a Christian. You have to understand and accept the fact that you are a person who needs to be saved in order to come to Jesus and seek him as a savior, right? So we are sinners. But yet, those who have put their faith in Christ as Lord and Savior, what we're told here is that they're forgiven, they're saved, they're redeemed, they are sinners, but they're saved by grace. And even more than that, God declares that in Christ, they are actually saints, right? You know what a saint is? It's not just a real religious person who lived a long time ago. A saint, the word, it means one who is set apart, Saint, one who is set apart. It means one who is holy. And this is the paradox of what it means to be in Christ. That we are sinners by nature in the flesh, but yet when we place our faith in Christ, then positionally, in the heavenly places, God declares that you are a saint. In Romans chapter 8, verse 30, we don't have it up on the board, but you can check it out if you like. Romans chapter 8, verse 30, it says this. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now here's what's interesting. All of those words are in the completed tense, right? They're completed, justified. It's done. Glorified, called. They're all in the past tense, but here's the interesting one, right? He has called us. Yeah, we can accept that. He has justified us. Yes, he has in Christ. But here's the interesting one. He has glorified us. He has glorified us. That's also in the past tense. It's referring to something that's complete. It's a done deal, and here's why. Because God is outside of time right? He doesn't check his watch to find out when things are going to happen. He, he's, he sees the end from the beginning, kind of like this. If you watch the Macy's parade or whatever, I don't even know what it's called. I haven't seen a parade in a long time, but if you stand on the street and you watch a parade, right? We're going to have one here like on Main Street, right? Boulder County Fair, the parade. If you stand on Main Street and you watch the parade go by, you see each element of the parade as it passes you, right? And then when it's gone, you kind of see it down there and you kind of see what's coming, but you can't see them fully. But imagine this. Imagine that if you were in on top of a tall building or in a helicopter, for example, and you're watching the parade. Well, guess what? You see it all at once. Every element of the parade, one unit right there. The beginning, the end, every single part of it. And, and that's why God can look at you as you are now and he already sees what you will become what he will make you he sees the finished product and he can say for that reason you are a saint you are glorified in Christ positionally that is who you are it's who you are becoming and it is who you will become by the grace of God by the grace of God so the question is what is our primary identity though right we're sinners and we're saints but which one is primary which one is the one that we should focus on more, sinner or saint? And that's the point here. Our primary identity in Christ is saint. 
Our primary identity in Christ is saint. This is the label, this is the post-it note that God sticks on those who love and follow Jesus. And, and what we're going to see coming up in chapter 2 is that the person who has not put their faith in Jesus, the, the post-it note that gets stuck on them, is sinner, right? But once our faith is put in Jesus, God removes that label that says sinner and he puts a new label in its place that says saint. And that becomes our primary identity. How can it be then, of course, this is the normal question, how can it be then that if we are saints, yet we still sin, right? This is the paradox. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you know the verse, verse 17, it says, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation, right? Think about it like this, a sheep and a pig, fundamentally different animals, different creatures, right? Sometimes they both get muddy. The difference between them is this, sheep don't like to get muddy. That's not what they live for. They don't wake up in the morning with their mind consumed with, how can I go find some mud and roll around in it today? Pigs, on the other hand, that is what they live for. That's what gets them up in the morning. That's every thought that consumes their mind. I want to go roll around in some mud. When they're not doing it, it's the only thing they think about, right? Sheep, on the other hand, they'll sometimes fall into mud but it certainly is not their goal or their aspiration. And, that, and that's the difference. In Christ, we have become new creations. And although we do sin, that's not who we are, right? It might be something that we do, but it is not the desire of our hearts. Our hearts, if we have been born again in Christ, have been changed and transformed. And our primary desire is to live and please the Lord. So we may still sin, but it's not who we are. In Christ, we have become saints. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Paul tells the Christians that he's writing to, he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. It's important that you understand that when God looks at you, he sees a saint. He sees a saint who sometimes sins, not a sinner whom he's eternally annoyed with. You know, a lot of people, even a lot of Christians, this is their view of God, that he's just kind of always annoyed with them, always disappointed with them, that they're always just getting on his nerves, you know, messing up and then asking for stuff, and then messing up and then asking for stuff, and then saying sorry and then doing the same thing. And he's probably pretty fed up with you, right? He's ready to just cut you off if you don't knock it off, right? But here's the truth of God's word. God does not see you as a nuisance. He sees you as a saint. You know, even if, even if we don't act like saints all the time, he knows what we will become. He knows that we will arrive. And much rather than being annoyed with us, the truth is that he delights in you. He delights in you. And when he looks on you, he sees you in Christ as the person who you will become. The person that he is making you into. A saint, one who is set apart, one who is holy, one whose citizenship is in heaven. So first, the first label he puts on you, you are called. The second one, you are a saint. And the third label he puts on you is this, you are blessed. This is the third post-it note he placed on you. You are blessed. That is who you are. You are blessed. He says that. He says, in Christ you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in spiritual places. Do you know that? That that's who you are. You are blessed. You know, our human tendency, of course, is to focus so much on, on what we don't have rather than... and. and and even like what we wish we had rather than 
how God has blessed us. In Christ, we are blessed, not just generally, but specifically. In Christ, we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Joy, peace, hope, boldness, wisdom, spiritual understanding, these are yours in Christ. You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. They are yours for the taking. You need to take hold of them. You need to walk in them. They're yours. And here's the thing I want to finish with right now. Over the next few weeks, I'm going to talk more about the historical background of this letter and in which it was written. But for now, I will just leave you with this. Where did Paul write this letter from? He wrote it from a prison cell. He writes this letter from a prison cell. Paul was under arrest. He was locked up in a cell. He had a prison guard chained to him 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And you know what? This isn't the only letter that Paul wrote when he was in prison. He wrote four letters which are now in our Bibles. And they are known as the prison epistles. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And this is something I really admire about Paul, right? He's in a prison cell. And what does he say? He says, I am blessed. I am blessed. Maybe not physically, certainly not materially, definitely not financially, but spiritually, I am blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. I'm sitting in a prison cell. I got no money. I got no possessions, no place to live. I've lost everything for the sake of Christ. But here's the deal, friends. I am a rich man. I have been blessed with every spiritual blessing and nobody can take that away from me. And this is what Paul tells these believers about their identity in Christ. He says, you are blessed. You are blessed. Here's Paul sitting in a prison cell. And what is he doing? Is he sitting around feeling sorry for himself? Is he sitting around complaining about what he doesn't have? Not at all. His identity is he is blessed. That shapes his view of everything. He is blessed. He understands who he is in Christ. And look at the impact it has on him, on his life and on his actions. He isn't sitting around saying, poor me. I'm stuck in this prison cell. I can't do anything, man. I'm just locked to this guy. I can't even go outside and play basketball, you know. God called me to be an apostle. That's my calling. But now I can't do it because of my circumstances. Nothing ever works out for me, man. Nothing. Poor me. I'm just going to get depressed and eat potato chips and watch movies in the dark. But the problem was, he has no way to watch movies. They didn't give him any potato chips. He didn't even have a couch, right? He got nothing. He didn't even have anything to do in his depression. He just depressed and sit there. If he's not depressed, then he gets to sit there anyway. You know what I mean? He, he has nothing, but you know what he did have? And this is what's impressive about him. You know what he did have a lot of? Time. He had all the time in the world. He had time. And, and here's what, what he does. He doesn't have a lot of things, but rather than focus on what he doesn't have, guess what he, he does? He focuses and uses what he does have, and he considers himself blessed, and he uses that which he does have for God's glory and for blessing other people, right? And so instead of feeling sorry for himself, Paul decides that he's going to pick up a pen. And here we are 2,000 years later, and we're so thankful that Paul used his time in prison to pick up a pen and allow God to speak through him because we're still gleaning from it even today, right? Maybe sometimes you feel 
like things in your life haven't gone the way that you hoped they would or planned that they would. Maybe you feel that your current circumstances are holding you back. Let me encourage you to take a look at Paul and his attitude and take what you do have and I guarantee you, you do have something. In fact, you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. But take what you do have and use it for God's glory. Don't sit around wishing things were different. Take what you do have and use it for God's glory. You know, some people will find any reason to be defeated, but other people will see an opportunity in every situation. Paul is in prison. He can't be a missionary because he's tied to some guy and locked in a room, but instead of getting depressed and feeling sorry for himself because of what he didn't have or what he couldn't do, he keeps his focus on what he does have and how he can take advantage of the unique opportunities that God has given him in this situation and use them to glorify God and bless others. We're going to continue to look at Ephesians over the next several weeks exploring who we are and what we're doing here. But here's what I want to leave you with. Here's what we see in these short three verses. Who are you? You are called. You are a saint. And you are blessed. Amen? Let's pray. Please stand up. Lord, we thank you for who we are in you. Lord, we thank you that in you we get a new life and with that comes a new identity. And Lord, my prayer for each of us here today is that we would truly get a hold of that understanding of who we are in Christ, Lord. That it would get through our thick skulls and our hard hearts, Lord. Soften our hearts that we might understand and grasp and live in light of who we are in you. Lord, thank you that you remove all the labels of what we've done, what's been done to us, where we come from, where we've been. But Lord, and thank you, Lord, that you give us new labels. Thank you, Lord, that we are called to you. Lord, my prayer for every person here today is that they would come to Jesus. Those who have already come to know you, that they would come to you anew every day and they would be sent out by you every day. They would have a sense that they're called by you. And Lord, I pray specifically for those who are here amongst us today who have never truly come to you and given you their lives and their hearts. Lord, I pray that they might do that today. Lord, I thank you that we are blessed in you. Thank you that we are saints in you. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to walk in those truths this week. In Jesus' name, amen.